Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. One of the pleasures about doing this podcast, Tyler, we've been doing it for coming up on two years this fall, is we get to talk to some remarkable people. And I have to say, this is probably one of the panels I've been most looking forward to. We are pleased to welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast two distinguished thinkers about the American shoreline. The first, Dr. Oren Pilkey, the James B. Duke Professor Emeritus of Geology at Duke University. Uh, Many know he is the founder of the Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines at Duke, a organization currently led by Dr. Rob Young. uh, Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, has been on three times. (laughs) And he is the author of his many books, but the most recent coming out in 2019 is Sea Level Rise, A Slow Tsunami on America's Shores. Uh, I'm very pleased to have Dr. Pilkey on the show, and he is joined today by Gilbert Gall, an incredible journalist and author, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, and an author in his own right of the book relevant to this discussion today called The Geography of Risk, Epic Storms, Rising Seas, and the Cost of America's Coast. Welcome you both to the American Shoreline podcast, and thank you for taking time out of your schedule to speak to us. Hey, thank you. We're pleased to be here. Well, look. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really uh, super stoked for this one, guys. Uh, And also, I got to say, Gil, uh, today, May 7th, marks the one-year anniversary to the day that we published uh, the podcast on the uh, Ship to Shore podcast hosted by uh, Bob Frump. Uh, You were were on that show one year ago that aired. Uh, Oh, my God. That's really gone fast. Just a little... uh, It's funny how... I don't know. History is kind of poetic like that. Here we yeah, are a year later. And now, yeah. I, now uh, Peter and I have the opportunity to speak to you. So uh, you guys are uh, a wealth of knowledge. And in this particular moment, Peter and I, we've been reflecting quite a bit about our coasts and society and uh, how we're managing these spaces going forward. Um, so just really looking forward to it. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new Coastal Resiliency Department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. 
They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. I've been watching and reading about uh, an effort you guys have undertaken recently to stop, talk to the community kind of down in the Carolinas about the American shoreline in a dog and pony show that I understand was billed, or at least I've heard, billed as old men in the sea. Um, and I would really like maybe to start with that. Uh, Gil, how did you and Oren decide to get together? And what was the hope and purpose of that exercise? So... Um, Orrin and I both had books coming out last September, early September, mid-September. Um, we've been friends, Orrin, I think, what, since probably, I think the first time I met you in person was around 1998 when I was, when I was working on a project when I then worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And um, we've talked, uh, Orrin and I talked on and off over the decades and then we had these books and the thought just occurred to me that it would be fun if we could get together and go to some places along the coast and talk about talk about the books talk about the themes obviously sell a few books if we could um but also try to jumpstart the national conversation a little bit to the extent that we could about the coasts and what he and I generally agree has occurred at the coast and is continuing to occur at the coast with regard to development, risk, uh, flooding, sea level rise, um, and the likelihood of larger, even more powerful storms in the future um, in the damage um, that these things do and then questions of risk and who pays for it. So, you know, in short form, that's that's really was the origin. And because, Oren, how old are you? 83? 85. 85. Oh, my gosh. And uh, and I'll be 69 in a week. We just we just thought it would be fun to call it the old men in the sea book tour. I love that. Uh, <laughs> I really do. I do, too. And I got to say, uh, you know, and I mean this like not as a joke at all, but it's uh, it's great to have y'all's perspective on this podcast uh oren i'm i have to ask uh you're you're a bit of a legend um i've heard a lot about you it's my first opportunity to to sit down with you and and talk and i would just i would really think it would be a treat for our audience to hear how you came to the coast uh how did you come to study and be fascinated by the land-water interface. Yeah, it's it's a it's a long story, but it basically starts with um, my parents, who had retired in uh, Waveland, Mississippi, and they went through Hurricane Camille, and their house, which was three blocks back, was essentially destroyed in, in Camille. And I went down there to um, help them. My brother and I went down to kind of help them recover, of course, and and I was so impressed. In those days, you could just drive right into the hurricane area. There was, they didn't stop you from going in, and um, I was in, incredibly impressed, and, and 
and I talked and I worked with my father a little bit while I was there, and he was he was looking at different houses and why some got destroyed and some didn't, and that that was a kind of an introduction to that aspect. The um, shortly after that, I wrote a a, a book. Small book, my first book, uh, how, how to Live with an Island. It was called, and it cost all of a dollar fifty, and um, it talked about processes of, uh, of on just one barrier island, Bogue Bank in North Carolina, but it talked about things that a lot of people hadn't um, that are pretty common knowledge for, from coastal of coastal dwellers now, and. Um, and as a result of that book, I got all kinds of, I was shocked, I got all kinds of phone calls and, and requests for interviews and things like that. And I, up to that time, had, had been a deep-sea sedimentologist, a deep-sea oceanographer. And, and nobody had ever called me about my deep-sea studies. So, and uh, there I saw <laughs> that boy <laughs> were really interested in what's going on at the coast and something that people really need to know so that's how, that's how i got started on this with my dollar 50 book <laughs> an honest entry into the profession if there ever was one to answer the question that your father posed so why is it that some of these houses did better than others and you said well let me just take a look at it uh that's one of the great origin stories of a professional career i've ever heard yeah it's like a, a meteor coming in that doesn't skip off the atmosphere, you know? It just finds its way right in there. Perfect entry. Hurricane Camille, what, 62, Dr. Pilkey, right? 60? Uh, 59. 59. Six, six, 1969. 69. Yeah. 69. 69. One of the yep. big first, you know, that at least when in, in, in my professional life, uh, Hurricane Camille is a benchmark in American hurricane history. Uh, I wanted to talk about this, Gil, what you mentioned in, in the purpose of the Dog and Pony show that you guys have done. It, and, and it's a serious discussion is to jumpstart this national conversation about the coast and to focus on the issues of development and risk and sea level rise and increasing storm intensification. Uh, this has been an, a focus, Dr. Pilkey, I know of your work for decades um, what is missing in the American conversation, guys, in this arena? I mean, is, uh, Dr. Pilkey, maybe you go first. What are we missing in the national conversation on this topic? Well, you know, the thing that, that is so striking to me right now, we, we are in a period, a time when it's very clear because of global warming that storms are going to intensify. And it's very clear that the storms, because the, because the oceans are getting warmer, it's clear that the uh, that coming storms are going to be uh, wetter, a lot a lot more rainfall, and at the same time, of course, the sea level rise is accelerating. So, so we we are here at a very critical, very critical time, that we and and um, um, and yet I think right now um, there is a great deal. The public has been educated about a lot of this stuff, a lot of the. Things with um, uh, with with storms and how how barrier islands work, but uh, but when we look around, we see that development goes on almost unfettered. It seems though, uh, and partly this is because the Corps of Engineers 
continue to uh, save our our shoreline by beach nourishment, seawalls, and a, and a whole variety of, of projects. <clears throat> uh, Gil, what about so, the conversation yeah, from so, your standpoint? So I, I would jump in, and I and I would say, and and this is really what what got me motivated to write to write the book. Um, there really has been no national conversation about what we've done to the coast and how we've gotten to this point where we have at least three trillion dollars worth of property that is in one way or another in harm's way because it's either along the it's on the barrier islands it's along the immediate ocean fronts it's along the um, back bays increasingly along the back bays um, and exposed to sea level rise and exposed exposed to these storms um, so what happened in, in my case um, I, look I've been I've been following the the coast not as long as Orin, but I've been following the coast for for at least fifty seven years. I was I was here in New Jersey in um, nineteen sixty two during the during the Ash Wednesday storm, which is one of two epical storms along with Hurricane Sandy that bookend the history of the Mid Atlantic states and did enormous damage. And what I saw after Sandy that was disturbing to me was that I thought the narrative that we write about these storms and the damage they do is 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 largely wrong. I mean, I get that the media wants to come in um, and swoop in after a big hurricane and and write about um, the immediate storm effects and about the empathy and focus on the people who have lost their homes. I mean, we all feel sorry for them, right? But What's missing in the conversation, or at least what I thought was missing in the conversation, was the questions about, well, why did this happen? And why did it happen the way it happened? Um, and what does it mean to build back? I mean, should we build back right away, as we did in New Jersey, um, after the 62 storm and after Sandy? Or should we hit the pause button and think a little bit about how we build back, or even if we should build back at all? And that was missing from the conversation. And it really doesn't happen at the national level. And it doesn't happen because of the politics, and it doesn't happen because the agencies that are involved take fairly narrow, compartmentalized views um, of, of the coast. So, Gil, what, I mean, I, I completely understand that viewpoint. And I mean, it does seem, we were talking on our show uh, last week with Nick Osbaldiston from Australia about how there's just this, we will rebuild where it was, yep. kind of pride it's I think it's deeply sure. homo sapien in us to uh, want to do that. But yep. um, I'm, I'm just curious to know, like in if I'm if uh, if uh, you could be king of the universe for <laughs> a day or whatever, I guess if you were king of the universe, a storm season. Yeah. <laughs> well, time, you know, I guess if you're king of the universe, you can time is just your your toy. But. Uh, nonetheless, you're king of the universe in this hypothetical. Uh, yep. You know, where would where would people live? How would we habitate Earth? I realize that there's the risk quotient of the shoreline. Um, and there's also just this larger environmental question about our relationship with this obviously very attractive thing to us that we're drawn to and, and uh, that perhaps we should manage that. But where should we be? 
<laughs> well, at, at this point, it isn't it isn't a question of where should we be because we're already there. Right. It was it was really it's it's really a question of. And, and let me just pause and say, in my book, I call this one of, if not the most important planning failures in American history. And, you know, it sounds hyperbolic, but it really isn't if you step back and think about it. Because when I say there's been no national discussion, I mean, part of that is there's never really been a discussion of what we want our coasts to look like or what we wanted them to look like. So it was one thing when you had a coastline or a shoreline, Barry Islands, where relatively small numbers of people lived and they worked on the water. Um, and I'm not romanticizing this. It was just a totally different type of lifestyle. And what happened was that we began to think about the coasts and the shorelines in a different way. We began to think about developing them as assets Okay, so you build a port. Again, that's one thing. It's a working port. Um, maybe the people live in the area near the port. Maybe they don't. Most of them in the olden times, and Orrin can tell you this better than I can, um, didn't really live by the water. They lived back away from the water because they understood the risk of the storms and flooding and so on and so forth. That all got lost when we developed, and I'm talking at 30,000 feet here, but, but when we developed the coast, we never, we stopped having those conversations. We simply marched ahead and filled up every available square inch of the coast that we could with houses and increasingly with vacation houses, second homes, um, and develop the coast into an investment community in, in many places. Um, yes, it's an economy. We can talk about that, what kind of an economy it is. But it may not be the smartest economy. And in fact, um, a guy by, you may have had on the show, or if you haven't, I would recommend you have on the show at some point, Spencer Glendon, who used to be, used to manage a, a trillion dollar um, investment fund, got climate religion and um, went up to Woods Hole um, talking about Florida, said, Florida's economy is a collection of assets that anticipate population growth, climate stability, and all of the benefits that come with those two. It's an economy built on bad assumptions. Wow. And I like that quote a lot because I think it captures a lot of my own thinking in the way we've developed the coast and the position we've put ourselves in it and the risks that um, have resulted um, by many poor choices. It's an interesting perspective of this focus on risk. And Dr. Pilkey, I know in the, in the many, many years of work that you have put into educating people about coastal risk, about the fluidity of our shorelines. I don't think that's too strong a word. The dynamic nature of this world is to bring to the decision makers a deeper, perhaps, understanding of risk. And I think, you know, everybody, I think, got to give you an A plus. And with the, uh, the, 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 uh, the program for the study of developed shorelines continues that work. Here's the question I would like to ask you both is, why is the understanding of risk uh, 
not operative in the uh, in the full fretted as I think as Dr. Phil Gadry said this free form development that just continues to march on. I'm just curious. We know what the hell's going on here, and we ignore it. Why? <laughs> well, I, I think. Uh, well, I think it's money. Follow, follow the dollars um, is, is a significant part of this. What the bottom line, from my standpoint, and what I've been promoting or trying to promote or trying to educate people about, is the need to retreat. We've got to get out of there. We have to get out of there. If you consider that sea level rise is going to be probably two feet by the mid-century and probably five, three, four to five feet by the end of this century, we, we're going to get out of there whether we like it or not. I mean, the coastal plain coast like we live on here in, in the Carolinas and mid-Atlantic mid in general for, a, in theory, a one-foot rise in sea level should push the shoreline back at least uh, 2,000 to 3,000 feet. That is, if you don't have anything in the way. And that that's a theoretical figure, but it shows the problem is our slopes here are very, very gentle. And uh, so things are going to happen fast, and they're going to happen faster now. And we should, we just, we have to start considering retreat. Now, the, the Corps of Engineers is doing these massive projects that are many billions of dollars. But those same billions of dollars could be used to demolish buildings, to move buildings, to raise buildings, to buy the buy buildings, and so forth. But we're not. We haven't gotten to the point where we can, even though even though the general public is aware of the sea level rise and is aware of shoreline retreat. There's a lot of publicity about shoreline erosion, and even though it's well understood. We haven't made the leap in the in the in the public eye, at least, that of the fact that we have to move. We got to get out of there. Um, and that wouldn't. Uh, I mean, that's a complex question, of course. Uh, uh, New York City is one thing, but uh, uh, the Outer Bank of North Carolina is something else. There's quite a quite a variation here. We in in the situation as far as the shoreline is concerned. Yeah, you know, I don't I I feel like one can't help but make the connection between uh kind of where we're at with the COVID reopening and kind of this weird negotiation with our scientific understanding of what the virus is and trying to balance that out with our uh economic yeah. assumptions and yeah. uh, Gil you were talking about bad assumptions and I well, yeah I want to circle back to that what what let me jump yeah go jump ahead in. let me just jump in on what Warren's saying because I, I mean I think you you mentioned this earlier and I agree with you completely um, who doesn't want to go to the beach I mean everyone wants to go to the beach we understand that. We love the beach. I've spent nearly my entire life at the beach in one form or another. But there has to be some way, to, as, as you're making with your analogy to COVID-19, there has to be some way to balance that. Um, and risk really was never built in um, to the financial equation at the coast. 
you didn't just build a house and if it got knocked down, then it was on you, you were going to replace it, right? So when you look at the modern coast, which really begins after post-World War II, which is when we began to add all of these millions and millions of homes at the beach and, and build the modern coastal economy, what you see is that at the same time, that's when we, meaning the government, begin to build in an array of subsidies that not only encourage additional development at the coast, but then reward these decisions. And I'm just going to go ahead and call them. Some of them were risky or reckless building decisions that occurred at the coast. And the way it worked was there's an array of various subsidies on the front end um, that range from everything from building roads and bridges and water towers and utilities and federal grants for all of that and environmental grants through the EPA when that was created to federal flood insurance, which comes in in 1968, um, which was heavily subsidized and was has been a real money loser, um, to disaster relief. And now um, the variant of disaster relief, which is all of the dollars for hazard mitigation and we now call it resiliency and sustainability um, that flow towards the coast. So um, what happened was that I think, if I remember this correctly, in the 50s, the federal government contributed about 5% of the cost of recovery after hurricanes. Today, it's up to 70%. In some cases, um, it becomes 100%. So the whole question of risk, I mean, if, if you're the person who owns that house, you're not really shouldering the risk of living at the coast or, or not much of the risk. Um, it's a large amount of that risk is, has fallen on federal taxpayers. And that distorts the whole nature of risk and it distorts the moral hazard at the coast. Wow. That is the answer to the question. And I've never thought of it that way, but we have bought our way out of the risk of the risk and uh, through the subsidies. And you're right. Homeowners, uh, coastal communities do not bear the brunt of those cost implications and the risk involved. And therefore, the calculation doesn't include it. Uh, That's fundamentally the the point of your book, The Geography of Risk, is the development of that programmatic I don't know, subsidy or the buy-off of the risk. It doesn't actually exist. Right. Now, let me throw, a, let me, let me throw another wrinkle into this. Um, I will tell you, though, that my thinking is changing on this, and I, I believe that this is going to change fundamentally in the next few decades because of all the things Orrin and I are talking about, which um, are sea level rise, you know, whether whether it becomes three feet or four feet or whether as some think, you know, it could be it could become nine feet, depending upon the ice melt and in Greenland and Antarctica and other things. Um, and the heat um, storms are certainly going to ramp up and continue to become more powerful. And really, storms, if you think about hurricanes, hurricanes are really just issues of probabilities and numbers, right? All it takes is one major hurricane to make landfall in a place that's heavily developed. And then you have a Katrina, then you have, have a Sandy, then you have a Harvey, um, or you have an Andrew. Um, and, and, and that's why the damage is has become so 
catastrophic over the last two decades. We've just had a bunch of hurricanes landing in places where we just have huge numbers of houses and development. And it's unsurprising that, that um, you know, we end up with hundred $100 billion hurricanes. You know, you, um, you know, Hurricane Dorian was a Category 5 storm that sat uh, for a whole day over the Bahamas. I mean, that, that is probably the most disastrous storm of potential. What, what if that was? What if that was some other city, American larger city? What if that was uh, Washington D.C. Category five? I mean, you know, it's, it's just, just, it's, it's mind-boggling, it really. And, and right now, right now, the Gulf, um, for example, right now is probably as warm as it's ever. Been. And the predictions for a, uh, a, a pretty heavy storm—not for numerous storms, but for for big storms, for for powerful storms, is is well based because of the the, the warm the warmer water now than it's ever been in the Gulf. So we got a big storm. We got a big season coming, perhaps. <clears throat> yeah, I do believe that the uh, current projections are for an active uh, season this year. But as you are uh, both saying, it, and I completely agree. Uh, predicting what's happening with the climate change factors in there make it uh, almost impossible to predict the way things are going to go. But I'm curious to know um, your guys' thoughts on uh, the the risk quotient. We, I was talking uh, with Peter about this recently. And, you know, despite the fact that you have uh, I'm sure in the case of the Bahamas and in other uh, Puerto Rico, for example, a large human death toll. But for the American uh, voter, uh, the American citizen who watches these storms come in and then, you know, yeah, there's a big bill, but it's just a number. I mean, there's just seems to be this detach uh, a, a detachment from the the bill <laughs> And the, the, the loss of life is like, you know, usually, frankly, pretty, pretty small, I would say. Yep. Uh, I mean, I'm not I don't want to discount Katrina. I mean, there are obviously uh, terrible events, but, you know, the bill for how many people passed away in Harvey, Peter? I want to say maybe maybe 60. I think it might have yeah. gotten up to about 60. And yeah. uh you know, which is a tragedy, but we're talking about a hundred billion dollars or or more in two hundred twenty five billion dollars. Two hundred and twenty five billion dollars in damage. Yeah. And I mean that's I'm just curious to know how this um this idea of risk is being calculated. And if the statistics we're using and these dollar figures have meaning at the end of the day. Gil, why don't you take that one? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a tough question. I, I, if, if, if you did a survey of people, I'm sure you would get conflicting answers. They would say they're appalled by, by, by what's happening and by the sums that are being spent. On the other hand, if you ask them if they're going to take their vacation um, next week, they're going to say, oh, hell yeah. 
Um, and, and, and I understand that. So really, again, no national conversation, no leadership around these issues. Um, so it, it's going to continue. Um, I have two thoughts, I guess, about this. I mean, I, I do think the financial calculus is going to become so big as we go forward over the next couple of decades, unless somebody can find a magical way, and I don't think it exists, of engineering our way out of this issue or this problem, um, the amount of damage is is going to continue um, to ramp up. So Noah just came out with a report a month or two ago in which it they said – uh, hurricanes alone have caused something like $950 billion worth of damage, so nearly a trillion dollars worth of damage since, ni- since ni- 1980. If you parse the data, what you see is that most of that damage um, has been since the year 2000 because of Katrina, because of Harvey, because of Sandy, and so forth. Um, we know that the Caesar going to continue to rise. When they rise, it elevates the platform for storm surge um, in the next hurricane. Um, it extends the coastal floodplain inland so that um, that storm surge can reach even more development. Mm. Um, that is going to continue to increase the amount of damage. Um, that said, a couple of things. One, um, I, I think people realize that the National Flood Insurance Program can't continue the way it's structured, um, that it just doesn't work. Um, It never included reserves for storms like Katrina or Sandy. Um, You end up borrowing against the federal treasury to pay the claims. You end up $40 billion um, in debt. Um, It was just broken from day one. I think that by hook or by crook, we're going to be forced to eventually deal with the flood insurance so that premiums are going to have to go up to reflect the real risk of having a house along a bay or an estuary or along the ocean front. Mm-hmm. Um, that will begin to have an impact um, at the coast. I think that the cost, the cost of living at the coast has to be shared more equally. And I think over the next couple of decades, that's going to happen. I think you're going to see the feds pull back on some of the money that they're pitching at the American coast today. Um, And that means that the local towns will be forced to raise taxes to cover more of the cost of living at the coast. The impact that that's going to have along with sea level rise and more storms is that I predict, I think, that we're going to begin to 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 build this into the calculus of property values at the coast and all the wildly inflated property along the shoreline mm. is going to begin to deflate at some point. Mm. In other words, the, you're going to lose... Your your house that may be valued at a million dollars today may be worth five hundred thousand dollars going forward, or two hundred fifty thousand dollars going forward. That's going to have a lot of impact. I mean, I think banks are going to be unwilling 
to issue 30-year mortgages at the coast. I know I sure wouldn't issue a 30-year mortgage at the coast knowing what I know now. Maybe they'll only issue 15-year mortgages or maybe, you know, maybe there'll be no mortgages at all going forward. I don't know. Maybe it'll become a cash, totally cash transaction. Well, let me me bring... Go ahead. Let me bring in another element here and that's that is uh, beginning to be increasingly important in people's understanding of the future of the coast, and that is the the tidal flooding. These are the floods that occur because um, they're the same tides are all a bit even depending on the moon and the sun and so forth. But now with the addition of the sea level rise that's already occurred, the tides are higher and doing a lot of flooding, and in some cases doing quite a bit of damage. And... um, a lot of disruption in in cities like, uh, um, let's see, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, for example, and uh, Miami. Yeah, Miami. Yeah. So these these so-called tide, uh, tidal flood, which are the king tides, are the highest of all. They're always they're always warned about in, in local newspapers, but they this is really coming home. Um, uh, and I think this is this is adding to the public recognition of what of what's coming. And I, I also would like to say that during, I've probably been at this game of trying to get people to re- or talk about the possibility of the need for retreat. I can I can say that many aspects of the problem now are much much better understood, publicly, like the fact that sea walls destroy beaches. And um, and so forth. So uh, I think there's been a great deal of of, of progress. Uh, it took me a while to recognize this, but it, it, we we have a lot of progress. We're getting there, and flooding is helping. Um, yeah, one another aspect here that that's really powerful with the king tides, especially, is the uh, price of houses is going down. Uh, if a house is known to get flooded or, or you can't go to church or you can't go to school uh, once a month because of king tides, why the price, of course, is going down. And that's getting a lot of attention. And I think that's, that's helping in understanding the whole risk problem. Absolutely. It sounds like if I listen to both of you, you're talking about the pressure on the practices that we have is going to amp up or uh, Orrin, you're talking about the physical environmental pressure, the flood risk, the rising waters, the king tide, that the earth is putting greater pressure on the econ- on, on our pattern of development on the shore. And Gil, if I'm following you right, you're saying the cost risks are about to get built in more. The price signals are about to put pressure on this sector as the American public gets a little bit tired of the level of subsidy being provided. And I think that you're both arguing something that I believe is true, that the current status quo of freewheeling development on the shoreline is becoming less tenable. Is that, can we safely say that, or is the persistence of our stupidity, I'm just going to say it, the risk the recklessness of our development so profound that it is going to overcome this no it's it's we're not there yet but we're increasingly cognizant of the relationship and what i'm saying is is that it's coming 
those price signals are emerging. Um, people are becoming increasingly aware of them. And it's only a matter of time until they get baked into things like the credit um, rating for beach towns, into the mortgages, into flood insurance, and into other financial instruments. And as it becomes more expensive, um, and that and, and that share falls increasingly on the the homeowners in the beach towns, I think that it's only a matter of time until that begins to have an impact right. on property values, especially when you combine it with, as you just said, with what's coming down the pike, which is more water in lots of different forms, um, nuisance flooding, uh, rain bombs, these torrential rainstorms like mm -hmm. Harvey morphed into and Florence, Florence. morphed it. Yeah. Um, and, um, and the bigger, occasional, bigger, ferocious Cat 4, Cat 5 hurricane yeah. that happens to make landfall in a heavily developed location. Right. Uh, thank God it was only Mexico Beach when uh, Hurricane Michael came ashore in the panhandle of Florida. Uh, just an absolutely devastating storm. Let's turn our attention, though, to the real world. Recently, you've both written articles. Gil, your article in, in Yale 360 addressing the decision of the Corps of Engineers to put, I think the number is about a $3 billion seawall into Charleston. Uh, Dr. Pilkey, your article in the Charleston Post and Courier uh, well-written analysis of why this is the wrong thing to do. So the dynamic of the discussion you guys are having is, in, is of course occurring in real time at this moment. And I would like to ask you both, starting with you, Dr. Pilkey, talk to us about the Charleston Seawall proposal and why that is not a, a, a project you can support. Well, the, the Charleston, the Seawall is the is the biggest thing you can do. That is, it, it's uh, the king king of the mountain in terms of shoreline stabilization, and they've gone straight straight to that. Um, and and I don't think the community has been involved with with this discussion with the core with the core's thinking. Um, sooner or later, Charleston, the peninsula of Charleston, which is surrounded by water. Uh, we will have to have a seawall. There's no question about that. If we're going to survive, if we're going to stay there, but the, but it, it only it only uh, it only protects about um, a third of the population of Charleston, and, there, and other parts of Charleston are all are equally at risk. And uh, I, I um and, and this this very very costly seawall. I don't know what that's going to do to the budget of, of, of Charleston, but it's not. It's, uh, it, they're going to have to pay a good part of that, which is a good thing. And and the point is, they should. We need to plan for the, all of Charleston, and uh, that's one problem. The other problem is basically the seawall is not going to solve the problem even on the peninsula. It it was the peninsula will still be in danger from from a significant storm for sure. And will still be flooded, and of course it's being flooded now. You talk about king tide. King tides are really, are really a serious, a serious problem for Charleston. Yeah, we were just there, and uh, we actually 
had a conversation with uh, a doc and uh, he was talking about how bad it gets when it rains and uh, access to the hospital is tough. The, the streets flood. Um, that is a tricky uh, part of it. The, the other thing that's happened, um, as you uh, as we talked about earlier uh, on the show, is that uh, the area around Charleston has really sprawled out. We saw a lot of like, you know, kind of or suburban sprawl around where they were clear cutting forests and you know it's all lowland you know basically kind of swampy out there we were along the river yeah yeah well inland, yeah, right. we inland along the river there where there's a lot of development going on there right yeah and for sure charles uh gil tell us about your your take on on the charleston seawall and 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 your article in uh, yale 360 that came out this week outstanding right. piece of work right so I mean, Char- Charleston is just a fascinating place. I mean, we want to save it, right? Because because of of, it, of its history, which is, you know, in part tragic and and and, and in part quite good. Um, we want to save it because of its culture. I, I don't know whether we end up having to have a seawall there if we if we're going to save that place. And if we do decide that's the only option, then the question becomes who's going to pay what percentage, how much is going to be federal, how much is going to be local. Um, we, we just don't know. A lot of people think that it's highly unlikely the seawall will ever get built because in, in, after the, the COVID-19 economic meltdown, there may not be any, much money left for, right. for seawalls, right? But Charleston's interesting because um, as um, one, of the, one of the people I quoted in my story, uh, Phil Dustin um, from the College of Charleston noted, um, at the same time that uh, that we're planning to basically build this hard perimeter around the, the downtown historic peninsula, which is eight square miles, um, um, the rest of Charleston, another 100 square miles, um, they're continuing to build in sort of an unchecked fashion um, um, these huge new developments, some of which you apparently saw, um, especially on John's Island, um, where they're they're building into the sides of sand dunes, they're they're creating swales, they're building on top of old um, old tidal creeks and old creek beds that um, you know in the past were literally filled in with sawdust from the t- when, from timber cutting. And and the land just leaks everywhere. It's called low country for a good reason. There's very little elevation, yeah. and and it bleeds water um, at every turn. And so you know, um, unless you're going to control that kind of development at the same time, at the same time you're talking about spending two or three million billion dollars to build to build a seawall. I mean it. it 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 just makes no damn sense, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, you're you're encouraging risky development at the same time you're trying to save yourself from historically risky development. You know, Orin, I'm I'm curious if you could take us back to, uh, you know, when you were young and people. Uh, I think you mentioned that uh, development has changed in your lifetime and you've seen this move to the, but I'm curious to know how it was done before and um, you know, where, what, where were people living? I mean, Charleston obviously has, is a very old city, but uh, throughout the, uh, the, yeah, well the, and the Carolinas, the, the, the amount of little suburban golf course development out there on the, as, 
Uh, Gil, you said earlier, a lot of this is on the Bay side. I mean, if you look at Florida development, for example, you know, you've got your, your suburbs and your, your, uh, in those lowlands, they like to do the canals. Uh, that's real popular. So you can boat in and out and just really, you know, I guess you got to put the water somewhere, you know, and you can dredge that stuff out. I don't know. But, but, or in, I mean, what, what was, uh, tell me what it was like in the old days. I'm just, you know, fill me in. Well, I, I remember one event, um, I, I was giving, I was at a public hearing and I, I talked, uh, this is in Florida, I think, maybe in Miami and I was talking about the need to perhaps retreat and so forth. And, and, uh, and a colonel in the Corps of Engineers, uh, said, uh, what are we going to do? Throw up our hands and slink away? Well, you know that was that it was unthinkable at that time that that development should be restricted in any way, and that we, and of course we were in Miami, and especially in Fort Lauderdale, you have lines of twenty-story high um, uh, high rises, and the future of them, and the future well, we have hundreds of miles of these this type of shoreline in the United States and on the in the Gulf and Atlantic. And um, eventually, right now they have a little. They have some beach, but eventually the beach, as as the seawall goes, uh, excuse me, as sea level rise goes up, there will be no beach there. And eventually, these will be these will be twenty story buildings uh, in a beach community without a beach. And that's going to be the fate of a large number of communities. I think, it's, especially especially in Florida. Now the, the the outer bank type problem with beach cottages is quite a different situation. The, the beach cottages can be moved. Uh, you know, we just we just moved a five thousand ton, two hundred foot high lighthouse, the Cape Hatteras lighthouse. That's right. If you can move that, you can move a beach cottage. Um, but yeah, I, but or or in realis- re- realistically, there's far too many beach. Uh, we'll call them cottages, even though they may be three thousand or five thousand square feet, and, and, and sell for a million dollars plus. You, you're just not going. You're just not going to pick those things up and move them. I mean, the cost of trying to pick them all up to move them would be so extraordinary. I, I agree. I agree. You're not. You have, to, you have to do it in smaller doses, and 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 it's you know that's worth doing for sure. Yeah. One other one other point I want to throw in here. It's worth remembering that land use is is decided locally. It's it's controlled locally, and the mayors and you know I mean this is completely uh, understandable. Their incentive is to build and to grow their communities, um, even if they're you know in front of an ocean or along the base, and there's all this risk. Uh, we understand that, so. The question becomes, well, how do you manage that? And uh, what you don't see is many mayors who are willing to say no to developers and and to development. And what I always say is until you can build smart land use um, into the flood insurance program and other financial instruments, it doesn't matter how much you talk about resiliency and sustainability and all the rest of it. Um, you're going to end up with the same problems that that we see today. Key point. It's what I call the time frame of reference problem. The horizon of decision making. And I'll start with Oren on the longest term scale. Oren, you're a geologist. 
you guys think in eras and epochs and all kinds of things, but let's just say at least a hundred years is, is a is a quick geologic frame of reference. And you go down to the most immediate time frame of reference in the decision making process, and you'll find a mayor who's gonna be elected for two years, and he's not thinking a hundred. He may be thinking five, he may be thinking in his ten year strategic plan to grow the town. But the differences between home ownership, which in which right now is a frame of reference of roughly 30 years in terms of a mortgage, but the turnover rate of coastal property is actually less than 10 years. So we've got decision makers operating within this discussion with completely different time frames of reference. And I think that's the source of the fundamental frustration in trying to come together because we're not thinking about the same thing. Yeah, you know, I'm often accused of, of thinking in, in terms of geologic time, which is, uh, you know, thousands of years, millions of years. But um, uh, it, it, um, I think um, what we geologists have added to this, um, to, the, to the argument here is, you know, it was only in the 1970s that we understood that barrier islands migrate. And because because we under, because now we understand that that at least gives us a framework of, of some planning and, uh, on barrier island we can and some some things like along some of our barrier island we simply are bulldozing back the sand to the beach every time a storm occurs but that that's just going to eventually lead to a big a big loss of land sooner or later because we're not letting the island. Even in a national seashore, we're not letting the island migrate wow. like it wants to migrate. And so there is something to to the geologic view. Of <laughs> course, the, I like to think so. <laughs> well, it's the truth. It's the long term truth. I want to yeah. ask, uh, Gil. You mentioned earlier, and I may get the name wrong, but I wrote it down. I think Spencer Glendon is that his name? Yes. And quoted him, a, a, a person who was part of the development universe and had a, a, a transformation. And when you mentioned that story, here's the question I want to ask. What changed Spencer Glendon's point of view? Uh, you know, I, I, I can't I can't answer that. I don't I, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I've not had that conversation okay. with him. So, you know, I, I wish I could. Um. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm like, can we replicate, you know, the process he went through? And I'm, so tell us a little bit more about who he was and what his view was, because I thought it was really compelling and does prove to me well, we can we he, can move forward. Oh, yeah. No, no. And, and, and I think there are there are um, reasons to be somewhat optimistic, not naively optimistic, but somewhat optimistic. Yeah. If, if people like Glendon, he he worked as I understand it. He was either the managing director or, or at least a partner level at, at the uh, Wellington um, uh, Management Trust. I have maybe bollocksing the name a little bit, and you know they managed a trillion dollars worth of assets off of Wall Street, and 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 as I mentioned, you know at a certain point, I guess he he began to be alarmed by the climate change issues and and by our lack of response to them nationally. And he went to work for um, up at Woods Hole and he's he's really I'm going to oversimplify this, but he's really exploring 
the larger question of risk at the coast and you know a little bit like i am in my slightly less sophisticated manner um thinking trying to think through you know these issues of how how risk applies at the coast and and how it affects what um um what we've done to the coast and what we continue to to do to the coast um let me throw in one other interesting thing. I, I think, you know, we tend to think in boxes. Um, so you get the Corps of Engineers. These guys are engineers. God bless them. I like a lot of them. Um, I just don't happen to agree with a lot of their solutions, but they're engineers. So they come up with solutions that you would expect an engineer to come up with. In this case at Charleston, you know, building, we're going to build a seawall to protect you from 12 or 13 or nine feet of storm surge or whatever, whatever it is. Interestingly, at the same time that the Corps was studying its solution, the folks in Charleston were doing what they call a Dutch dialogue, which, um, you know, is just a fancy way of saying it's, it's this idea that they developed in the Netherlands where they um, where they have an existential threat from water, where they were thinking about. Um, and having conversations, national conversations about, well, how do we live with water? And they begin to export this idea to the U.S. and they've done it in Galveston and they've done it in Norfolk and they're doing, they did it in Charleston. But none of the concepts and findings from that year-long exercise or conversation in Charleston were ever incorporated into what the Corps was doing. So you had these two different entities operating in, in different silos, coming up with different ideas. The folks from the Dutch dialogues are talking about, well, can we find places to store water in storms? Or can we have more open space? Do we have to have a hard perimeter? Can we also have parts of it be a softer perimeter? You know, can we restore wetlands? Can we do this? Can we raise roads? Do the, these kinds of things softer solutions and then you have the core coming up with its its hard solution which is to build a seawall you know um one problem with with the, listening to the dutch the dutch are always called upon after every storm in one fashion or another but uh, the, the dutch for example basically aren't interested in moving they uh, they don't have the problem that we have it's a very small country it has no land uh, that's available to move to. I mean, they they have to protect what they've got, and that's it. If they, if the if the country is flooded, then it's then it's done for. And, and we're we're not in that situation. We got a lot of land left to move to move to if we have to. And so, but they they have some good ideas. I think you know, working working with the water, as they say, working with water. And they do, and and we have we can learn some things from them. But I worry uh, too much that the that that we should understand that the, that the Dutch have a different problem than we. Have. To- totally, uh, I feel that, Orrin. Um, and you're you're right. From best we can tell, uh, the Dutch are rewilding rivers now and trying to uh, uh, go. I you know engineer with nature increasingly. But that being said, um, I want to go back to this idea that we are uh, uh, siloed off and there's different solutions floating off and different ways of thinking. This is something that we spend a great deal of time on this show uh, thinking about and talking about. And 
uh, Gil, at the beginning of this discussion, you referenced the national coastal discussion and you, you right. uh, wanted to introduce something. And I, I would like to get your thoughts as to um, what you think that discussion should look like ideally. And, you know, obviously we are where we are now and, you know, set a, give, give me a vision of how, of where we should be going with this uh, national discussion about the coast. Well, first, first of all, the data are all out there. Um, I got a lot of them into my book. Um, it's not like it's a secret what we've done to the coasts uh, in terms of development or the environmental damage or now the damage from hurricanes and from flooding. All, that, all those data are available. You, you would start by just having developing that baseline, um, you know, so you had that you had you had that data available to steer the conversation. Um, there would have to be, and, and and this is where I guess I get a little bit stuck. I'm not quite sure which agency, or I don't particularly. I don't have much hope for Congress. I mean, I hate to say that, but I do, <laughs> but, but I just don't. Given what we see, um, we're so divided and and so cynical and and honestly, the. The folks who represent the coastal states are looking out for their interests, right? So they don't want to see the flood insurance become more expensive, premiums go up. So you have to find, um, you know, whether it's the National Academy of Sciences, um, whether it's it's one of the nonprofit groups, whether we create something new. Um, but it would have to be real. I mean, it can't it can't be. Um, excuse my language, you know, just another bullshit commission that, <laughs> right. that is, you know, just going to issue a report and it's going to go on a shelf and go away. Um, there's so much at stake here. Um, there's the, the value is so high. The risks are so high. I'm less concerned about the issue of people being killed um, and injured at the coast because the one thing we actually have done a fairly good job at is predicting hurricanes and where they're likely to come in. And, you know, we have a window of several days generally so that we can get most of the people out so we don't have a, nearly as many deaths. Um, you know, Katrina was a bit of an outlier. It was more of an engineering failure than it, than it was a classic hurricane. Um, but I, I think we need to discuss what's at risk um, Who's going to pay going forward if we're going to continue um, to live and build and develop at the coast? We need to look at the issue of, of uh, putting more of that risk back onto the, uh, onto the shoulders of the beach towns, the coastal communities, those states, and, and the homeowners um, in order to, in order to um, solve this moral hazard pro uh, problem that we have at the coast. Um, you know, I wish I could point you to one person. Maybe we can. Maybe we can anoint Orrin, and Orrin could become the coastal czar and lead the conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but but you know, there are a lot of smart people out there. Um, I've discovered over the last few years thinking about these issues. It's not like there's a lack of knowledge or a lack of good ideas. It's more a lack of willpower and especially political willpower. Right. And I'll yeah. just I'll end this long rambling thing by saying one thing. I was really impressed when Orrin and I gave our talks 
by um, the questions from the people, by the interests. There's a real hunger for people who live at the coast to have more knowledge and to be engaged and think about what the coast might look like in an age of climate change. Wow. Well, I think what it sounds like is what you're calling for is a serious conversation about our relationship to the coast. And I want to, and, and, and that serious conversation, Dr. Pilkey, as, as what I hear you calling for, is a serious discussion of retreat and the undoing of some of our more egregious coastal development mistakes. And to, to frame that just a tiny bit, I think I can think of four times, and, I, and, and this is what I'm asking you guys, and you look at the history of what we're doing on the coast, or at least recently, relocations that have been actively discussed. Isle de Jean Charles in Louisiana, a Native American community that's already lost 98% of its land. Yes, we're relocating it. It's been pulling teeth and it's taken a decade. New yeah. Talk, Alaska, uh, a very small, again, Native American community on the, on the coast of Alaska that is actually being discussed for a potential relocation. And Valmeyer, Illinois, which is a Mississippi River town that has been picked up and relocated for real to the benefit, I think, of a lot of people. They're small towns. And the fourth one, I would say, is Galveston, Texas, in the vertical retreat of the whole damn city after the 1900 hurricane, where they raised the buildings, including the Bishop's Palace and, the, and all of the houses and the roads and built the seawall. I mean, we all I can say is if you're looking around for how the hell to do it, it's not it's not easy to find an example. This is I I don't know what else there is. And and these were communities that were powerless. uh, You know, the Alda John Charles is powerless politically and economically. New talk was, too. I mean, I don't know. Can we I'm just saying it's hard to in the serious conversation we need to have about retreat. Uh, I'm looking for the, the the key to the kingdom on that, and it's just so hard to find it. You know, the, the, uh, well, I guess what we really need to think of first is that we've got to stop the um, senseless kind of development that's going on now. I mean, we there's a lot of it going on, as, as Gil mentioned, as some of the parts of Charleston. Um, that's first of all, why we, how, how can we how can we get into the future when we're still making it worse and worse? <laughs> Great question. And that's that's something. And, you know, they, uh, I'm fascinated by the native villages in, in Alaska. But most of them just have four or 500 people because they live off the land. They can't have more than that. And it would cost 100 or 200 maybe more than that, $1,000 per per inhabitant to, to be moved back as a standard. Um, number that they, they they work with and you know the, the cost of moving them back was it's so immense for 400 500 natives uh, it, it, it just can't happen so what are we going to do move, so the question did he move to the town did he move to the big city well what what does somebody do who can hunt and fish with great skill but what do they do in the city you know Etc. So each situation is different. Each situation is different for sure. I'm really curious to know what what's going to happen to Fort Lauderdale. Um, 
they're, they're, they're not going to retreat. There's no good. There's no good outlook there. Hey, hey, Orin, look at look at look at New Jersey, my my home state. After Sandy, we had three hundred million dollars as part part of the uh, federal money to buy out houses. Uh-huh. How many houses did we buy on the Jersey Shore after Sandy? Trick question. Yeah. Zero. 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 Oh, really? Zero. Zero. And yeah. why do you why do you think that is? <laughs> right. Nobody. No mayor wanted to sell houses. They didn't want. They didn't want it there to yeah, have a gap course. along the ocean. Front. Of course. Yeah. So they used they used the money upriver in uh, about 100 miles from the coast, and that was all good. I mean, there were plenty of places that flooded up there, but it's a different sort of situation. And then there's the other place, or in our favorite our favorite place, Dauphin Island, Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> which has zero elevation on the west end, which is where where all the second homes are, the vacation homes are, the expensive homes. It, every time a, a hurricane comes up into the Gulf um, and races up the Gulf, it hits it hits Port Dauphin Island. People don't remember that in um, in um, uh, 1998, Hurricane George, a Cat two storm, which wasn't much, knocked down um, 42 houses, um, pitched them into the Mississippi Sound. So the people the people then turned around and said, "Okay, what are we going to do? We're going to elevate." So they elevated on 15-foot poles, and then, and then a 19-foot storm surge from Hurricane Katrina blew across the west end of Dauphin Island and knocked something like 400 houses into the Mississippi Sound. And what do you think happened after that? They 18 feet. <laughs> and now they're yeah right now they're 18 or 20 feet. I don't know. They're birdhouses looking over. The, but you know what? After 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 Katrina. Um, about 15 people who owned houses down there raised their hands. They 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 waved the white flag and they said, "We're willing to sell." And the town went to went to FEMA to get because FEMA has various programs for buyouts. It's not a lot of money, but there is some. And they said, "We've got these 15 houses, you know, and we're the, we're probably the most vulnerable place in America. Um, you ought to buy them." Two years went by. They finally got a letter from FEMA, and the letter said, "Sorry, but we you, you don't make the cut. We don't have any money to help yeah. you." Hey, Gail, do you know that uh, a, a two and I think about six months ago on that TV show where they sell coastal houses? Yeah, they, they sold a house on Dolphin Island, and and uh, the, at high tide, the water came under the house. Oh yeah, <laughs> during the show. <laughs> Yeah, and they're thinking it's so nice. It's a great, it's a great selling point. I, you can fish right off the deck, I ladies and gentlemen. You know, I know, seriously. They'll I turn mean, that into it. No, they, and they, the, the, I think the house. I mean, I hate to say it. I know that it's risky. I hear you guys. I do. I do. But I'm telling you, there will still be people. <laughs> my, to my, to my mind, the yeah. issue is that we have a social. For one, we have institutionalized into our society an acceptance of this coastal tourism economy where we can just milk that shoreline for all of its uh, environmental you know the, the place value of being near the water we can just milk that just yeah. like Disneyland just Disney it up I mean I no offense to Disneyland out there I, that was kind of rude right. but like you know what I mean yeah, like I do. like it's one big uh 
a trap, you know, ride. And uh, that is that needs to change at the broadest kind of societal level. I don't think it's so much even, I think the risk discussion is a part of it for sure. But to me, my motivation is much more about the, 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 it's, it's rude to the space. It's bad for the planet. It's bad for the environment. It's not sustainable, not sustainable for our society, but it's not sustainable for, uh, for life on earth it's it's a it's a bad use of this dynamic <laughs> space where the majority part of the planet the water part hits the minority part the land part i mean give me a break we we ought to give that dynamic zone intuitively some space but we have to decode all of that built-in um momentum that has that we've just yeah. been carrying and all of that economy that we've built up and I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't have a I guess my question was like, do you do that at the grassroots level through organizing in individual communities? Like is our is the retreat project that will this wave of retreat projects originate from local people like in Ventura, California, where the local surf rider chapter has just over like 25 i mean it's a small little project and it's all public land i mean they they had to fight to get the parking lot for the fairgrounds retreated i mean that's how and this is in california it was a fight it took them decades it was a huge fight and uh you know i or or will this be a, a federal program will this be a program where the 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 feds will incentivize it with with a good chunk of money, a good slug of cash that gets the ball rolling. What do you think? So take take all the dollars that we spend on all the subsidies at the coast and let's rewire them into some sort of program that would be, um, you know, that would look at educating people about, about the coast, but also importantly, offer opportunities to begin the slow managed retreat from the coast because it's not going to happen in a hurry. It's going to happen slowly um, over time. It's going to take decades, but maybe that's the way to go. I, I have a dream that Dr. Pilkey, your next book will be Sea Level Rise, A Slow Retreat of America on America's Shores instead of a slow tsunami. I mean, maybe we get there. Maybe there's a, a chance we can. What do you think? Is Are you an optimist, Orrin, when it comes to this issue? I, um, yes, I, 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 I am, but on, on a time scale, as Jill says, it's going to be a long time. It's not happening now. We, um, but um, it, it, it'll happen. It, it is happening a little bit. There are a few houses here and there that have been moved. And FEMA used to have a program where um, if a house was threatened, they would give you the insurance value of the house, and then they'd set the house on fire. I mean, and demolish the house one way or another. And like that, that. that that problem went went. Went away, of course. It was very unpopular with mayors. But um, anyhow, yeah. bad for TV. The burning house. <laughs> it's not a good luck. Yeah, I could just imagine the reaction from the lawyers. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, two of the f prominent thinkers on the American shoreline, in my opinion. Uh, 
in a great conversation about the number one, I think, issue on the American shoreline, the most complex equation to try to break down and understand. Dr. Oren Pilkey, the James B. Duke Professor Emeritus of Geology from Duke University, founder of the Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines. Check that out online. Outstanding website, outstanding work, and author of many, many books, the latest being Sea Level Rise, A Slow Tsunami on American Shores, and his compatriot, uh, Gilbert Gall, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, amazing journalist and author, his latest book, also in 2019, The Geography of Risk, epic storms, rising seas, and the cost of America's coast. Two fantastic books. If you're a coastal citizen, get off your ass and order them on Amazon and read them because you'll be smarter. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, thanks for sharing your insights and your uh, knowledge with with the listeners on the American Shoreline podcast. Absolutely one of the best conversations we've ever had. Thank you so much, guys. I'm gonna